Thank you, Sue. I had the same experience this morning. I woke up and the sun was streaming through our light curtains. It was so bright, it was like the curtains weren't there. It was, the whole room was lit up. And I went across and pulled the curtains back and even more light flooded into the room. It was like a film set where they just turned those enormous bright lights on to get everything in perfect relief. Now this event, the event we look at traditionally the week before we enter Lent, even though it's a little bit out of kilter with the chronology of the story of Jesus, called the Transfiguration of Jesus, is one of those occasions where when we're reading Luke's gospel, God effectively says, I'm drawing back the curtains, I'm letting the light in, can you see this? Do you understand it? And Peter and James and John are invited in this particular episode, the inner three of 12 disciples, to peer behind the curtain. Now the text tells you what the Greek tells you, so that's good that we've got an English text that agrees with the Greek, it's always a good thing. That the word to describe what happens to Jesus is, it is as if he is struck by a bolt of lightning. He's resplendent. We've sung, we created the songs and the words and the prayers this morning to talk about the light of Christ. This notion that as Jesus goes up on a hill, it is like a bolt of lightning. He becomes radiant. But also I want you to play with that little image because we use a phrase, don't we? It was like I was struck by a bolt of lightning. And we use it to mean all of a sudden, I realized it. I saw it. I, I was walking down this road, and all of a sudden, as if by a bolt of light, I suddenly thought, of course, it's this or it's that. What we're meant to do in this Lucan passage is listen and watch very carefully because what we're meant to do is not just see Jesus irradiated, but to go, of course. That's what it's about. Well, what is it about? This is my beloved son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. You see, in a sense, Jesus up to now could be regarded as a rabbi. There were hundreds of rabbis about. Up to now, he's a rather exceptional young rabbi who's pretty good at speaking. But there's been little evidence, apart from the inner story of the gospel, in terms of what Jesus has done outwardly, even at his baptism, there's a sense in which God falls upon him sotto voce, only, only Jesus sort of hears the voice and no one else round about it. Is that thunder? What's going on? This is the point in the evolution of the gospel story when God pulls back the curtains and says, I just need you to know who you are dealing with. This is not some rabbi from somewhere in the backwoods of the north of Palestine. This is not somebody who's just been given a gift of fluent speaking. This is not some clever guy who's going to stir up a few people. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
Then another clue about the seriousness of this occasion is not just the lightning, but the fact that you're up a mountain. Mountains were often in the ancient world a place where you got close to the divine. I mean, it's quite simple when you think about it. The divine is usually up there and far away. So the higher up you can get before you leap up, the nearer to God you might be and the less you have to shout to get the Almighty or the many, many different gods that the ancient world believed in to get their ear. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, mountains were often regarded as the place where God spoke. Remember Moses. We'll get to him shortly. Remember Elijah. He's high on a mountain when after the awful things that happened to him, it's not in the earthquake, it's, it's in the still small voice. Where is he? In the mountains. We also talk of mountaintop experiences. Those occasions, and some of us have them more than others, but those occasions where in the long faithful walk of Christian discipleship, suddenly we, we go up a place, we, we're blessed at a service or we go to a particular meeting. I went very unwillingly to Aldersgate Street where one was reading from Luther's epistle and suddenly I felt my heart strangely warmed. It's a heartwarming mountaintop experience. Now it's true that sometimes when you're going up a mountain, and I've been there and done it, though not so much recently, the mist comes down on the top of the mountain, you can't see your hand in front of your face. But sometimes I've been on mountains where you go through that bit and you think to yourself, when I get to the top of here, I'm not going to see a flipping thing. And then you come out of the cloud and you stand at the top and you look down on it and the whole terrain in every direction just goes. Oof. And you can see with a clarity and with an air that's so fresh, which is a wonderful experience. But we rarely stay on mountain tops for very long. Number one, they're quite cold and often they're quite barren. Number two, not a lot of people live there, so you're on your own, which is, and we'll come to this again later, why building tabernacles there is not the best idea in the world. We go up mountains and we come back down them. And in one sense, the value of a mountaintop experience, well, it's valuable when you have it because your heart's thrilled. God drew really close to me at that point. And some of you will remember times in your own discipleship that particularly when you're down and when you're not quite sure what you believe and whether you believe it or whether your prayers bounce off the top of the ceiling and get nowhere, it's those times where you remind yourself, yes, but at that time, I wasn't kidding myself when I realized that God came so near. I'm refusing to believe it was all in my head when I suddenly felt the nearness of God that time X period ago. The value of mountaintop experiences is the value of them when you're not on the mountaintop. They resource you. They remind you. Sometimes when we're in a more mundane spiritual place or even when we're down in faith. And many of us get down in faith. 
It's the remembrance of being on a mountaintop where God's faithfulness and the vision and the clarity that we had sustains us best. They're not common experiences, mountaintop experiences, but we do have them from time to time. What about the disciples? I want you to note the state of the disciples. These guys don't often come out of these stories very well, and they don't hear. Luke says they grow sleepy. How on earth, with Jesus appearing before you like a flash of lightning, and Moses, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the giver of the prophets, appears to you on a mountaintop experience, and these three guys feel sleepy? How on earth can you be sleepy on such an occasion? Unless Luke is referring to that subtle thing, which he is, that we see time and again in the Scriptures, where we're not necessarily or only describing their physical state. I'm a bit tired walking up this hill. I'll now have a rest. Oh, I nearly dropped off. But we're referring to the spiritual state of them. They're a bit sleepy because they're not alert. They're not switched on to what's happening. They just don't see it. It's there to be seen. Remember, when Moses received the law from God on the top of a mountain, the people to whom Moses comes as he walks down the mountain with the tablets of the law are spiritually sleepy. They don't receive the law Moses brings to them. They disobey the laws that God gives to them through Moses. The first law is, you shall, I am the Lord your God, I'm one, you shall have no graven images, and the first thing they do is melt down some gold and make a golden calf. They're spiritually sleepy. And here is then the followers of a person who's been with God, they're not in a good spiritual place. I wonder if you can think, and you're all good biblical literate people, I wonder if you can think of another occasion when these three disciples are going to be sleepy. I think. I'll give you a clue. We'll be there in about six weeks' time. When this time they're not up a mountain, but they're in a garden... And again, they're surrounded with a series of emotional, gut-wrenching realities where you'd think it's impossible for anybody to be sleepy. And they're going to sleep through the events of the Garden of Gethsemane. Our, is our following of Jesus on autopilot? Did you come to the service this morning thinking, ho-hum, it's another day, it's another service. I wonder when that old Yorkshire duffer will finish this morning. When they become fully awake, both up the mountain and in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's when they begin to see. Wake us up, Lord. 
Wake us up this morning, wake us up during Lent. We want you to draw back the curtains and say to us again, wake up. See, understand, be here. Because if you're not, you'll miss the very things that God wants to tell you and refresh in you and renew in you. If we don't see, we don't grow. One more thing about this before we move on. The transfiguration of Jesus is essentially the disciples being asked to see the divinity of Jesus. The divinity of Jesus. Jesus is more God than we think. And Jesus is certainly more God than we often act. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is essentially revealing his humanity to the disciples because Jesus is more human than they realize and Jesus is more human than we think. In our lives today, as Christian disciples, some of us will need to know and realize that Jesus is more divine than we normally acknowledge. And if he's divine, he's the person for whom nothing is impossible. The one who, for all our discipleship, we can never treat just quite like another pal. That's why, though we love it, what a friend we have in Jesus is not very good theology. Now listen very carefully, not because Jesus is not a friend, but because if we impute to the word friend, my mate, we've lost it. Jesus is the Son of God. Listen to him. And some of us will need to know Jesus is more perfectly human than we often think. He's not far away. He is, to use a Pauline phrase, at hand. And when Paul uses that phrase in Philippians, he means quite literally as far away as that. He's not above us in the sense that he's remote and not interested in our lives, doesn't hear our pleas for prayer, doesn't care about us, is so remote from us that doesn't know or understand what our lives are about. More divine, more human. Wake up. And this morning, realize that if Jesus is more divine than you think, what does that mean? And if Jesus is more perfectly human than your thinking, what does that mean for your discipleship, for your lives? And then there's Moses and Elijah. Well, we know why they're there. The law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. I am come, says Jesus, to fulfill the law and the prophets. So here they are on the mountainside. Moses, for example, goes up the mountain to receive the restored tablets of the law of God. He arrives back down the mountain. His face shines and radiates. 
So there's a sense which we're meant to pick up that Jesus is the new and greater Moses and his teaching is going to be the new and greater law. That's what the person is writing about in 2 Corinthians that Shola read for us, where we've got all these ideas that the law, great as it is, is somehow always wrapped up in some kind of veil. But when Jesus comes and declares God's new law made flesh, you pull the veil back. The curtains come back. You see. You're meant to be able to see. They wouldn't miss the fact that a person with bright, shining face coming down in Deuteronomy has been near God, and the disciples are meant to realize that the shining face of Jesus here means he is with God. But Moses and Elijah are also two figures in the Old Testament who had peculiar exoduses. What do I mean? Well, Moses is led to the edge of the promised land, the land promised to Abraham. And he is said, you will not pass over to it. Just look upon it. And then, in a sense, we get a rather crumbly ending in Deuteronomy, where we're assuming that Moses has died, but we get this elusive phrase, but no one knows the place where he is laid. He's gone. And Elijah, well, we all know what happens to Elijah. There he is with his mantle, his prophetic mantle given over to his successor, Elisha, and the chariot of light, of fire, comes down from heaven while he's there in the mountains and takes him with God up to heaven where he presumably doesn't die at all. So here we have two figures who have gone before with peculiar leavings, talking to one, the Son of God, who will have a very peculiar leaving. And it's awful Christology. I never promised you I'd be a good theologian. It's awful Christology. But I see these great figures counseling, even encouraging Jesus. It will be all right to make this journey. It will be awful. But you must go to Jerusalem. But God will be with you. And from the other side, we tell you, it will be all right. God can be trusted, they say to the Son of God. And then we've got dear old Peter. Moses and Elijah show up, and if he'd been around today, he would have been like our beloved president of conference, got his phone out, put it on camera, and taken three selfies. And if you don't look on Facebook, that one's lost on you. Then Peter, ever the hospitable one, Lord, let me build three tents for you. There's so much wrong with this. In the text, you've got brackets. 
he does not know what he's saying. I mean, Luke cannot resist it. He wants you to know. you've, You've got to, even when you're reading the text, Luke wants you to know he is loop de loop at this point. Brackets. He doesn't know what he's saying. So note that as Peter suggests making dwellings for Jesus and Moses and Elijah, the sun and the brightness disappears in the text. Whoops, somebody switched the dimmer switch down. Coming back down to planet Earth, we were doing so well. Some scholars suggest this is because Peter is not seeing. What is he not seeing? I think, understandably, that what he's not seeing is that Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. Lord, let's make three, three booths, three tabernacles for you. Moses can have one, you can have one, and Elijah can have one. No, says Jesus, and turns the dimmer switch down a, a bit. No, says God, this is my beloved son, this is my chosen one. That's why at the end of the passage we are told that when the dimmer switch starts to come back up again, there's only Jesus there. See, Elijah and Moses aren't ultimately the point. Jesus is the point. But then there's also this problem of what building tabernacles represents. You see, they're dwellings. Let's stay here, Lord, on this mountain. Here is where you belong, up near where the gods are. You and Moses and Elijah, three great figures in my history. I can hardly believe it now I've woken up. You can stay here and I'll start a new business. Hang this fishing lark. I'll run a tour company. So tourists can come out here and we'll escort them up the mountain I'll run a little booth over there where I sell all kinds of ditties. I might even get some Jesuses with opening arms so that when they stand up, they open or close. We'll have a, we'll have a stall over there where I'll sell extortionately priced pieces of unleavened bread and some nice water. I'm really getting into this, Lord. And then, when they come, we'll have a photo booth so everybody can have a selfie taken with you and Moses and Elijah. It could become a place of pilgrimage like no other place on earth. His mind is running through. He's a businessman. Well, maybe, but it would be the end of Christianity. Some see in this text a a parallel of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, which we'll be looking at next week. In the wilderness, it's the devil who tempts Jesus. If you are the Son of God, then why don't you do this or that or do that? No, 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 it is written. And here on Mount Horeb, for the transfiguration, it's one of Jesus' closest followers, incidentally a follower to which Jesus will say much later on, get behind me, Satan. It's one of Jesus' closest followers who tempts Jesus in a different way. You don't have to go to Jerusalem, Lord. Stay here on the mountain. You don't have to set your face and talk all this maudlin stuff about death and about suffering and about the cross. Stay here with these holy people. Stay with me. Keep safe. 
And as we walk through Lent, we're going to repeatedly see occasions where people say to Jesus that he doesn't have to go to Jerusalem, that he needn't be handed over to Jewish authorities, that it's complete nonsense that he needs suffer and finally be put to death and after three days rise from the dead. That's not what God wants, they say. What kind of a God is it that wants that? Stay with us. We know better what God wants. Let's preserve the moment. Let's put it in spiritual aspect. Let's always try stay here in this moment. Let's build buildings and stay in them. Let's ignore what God's saying to us. If we hide in a building that's dedicated to Almighty God, God will never find us. There's that silly story as I close, though I'm sure it's happened at least once or twice, of the tourist who goes to Jerusalem on pilgrimage and goes into Jesus' tomb just outside Jerusalem. And he emerges surprised and says to the rest of his colleagues in his tourist party, it's so disappointing, there's nothing in there. How we misunderstand faith so often. Is Christianity still a living, revealing faith for us? Or are we living out our Christianity a bit like Peter who says, not that Lord, not it's my way. Do we like this? Let's not be sleepy this Lent. Let's not deliberately hear or mishear this Lent. Let's not try lock our Lord into a nice cozy places that we'd like him to be. Let's remind ourselves again, he is the Lord, we are his followers. He invites us to follow, he chooses the route we go on, we follow or we don't. Today, let's resolve to be a people who awake, who see, who know that the Lord's way is best and resolve to follow again. Amen.